they didn't like when oh katie just disappeared my bad I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what happened well i was trying to <laughs> see what had happened was <laughs> i didn't want any teams notifications to come through on the recording but then i remember that if i quit teams i lose the meeting so i was like okay never mind <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Editorial Director for the Endeavor Business Media Water Group and Editor-in-Chief of Wastewater Digest. I am Katie Johns, Editor-in-Chief of Stormwater Solutions and Water Quality Products. My name is Mandy Crispin, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Waterworld. And in this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will talk about a new study from the USGS regarding the prevalence of PFAS chemicals in tap water throughout the U.S., the launch of the American Business Water Coalition led by May Stevens, who is an accomplished water professional and also one of our Wastewater Digest 2021 young pros, and we will also touch on New Jersey's PFAS settlement with Solve. Finally, our interview this month is with Katie Peach, North American Domain Leader for Potable and Advanced Reuse for Veolia Water Technologies and Solutions. Katie is one of our 2023 WWD Young Pros and shares details on how technology is evolving to meet water reuse needs in North America, the regulatory landscapes that are being reshaped as we know it, and where business opportunities lie as it relates to water reuse. But first, some news. So starting, we're going to talk about the USGS study, which concluded that 45% of all tap water in the U.S. contains at least one PFAS chemical. Now, it is likely that you saw headlines about this from numerous media outlets, and mass media ran with this story, causing a lot of stir among water professionals due to the use of the word contamination by those agencies and by those media outlets because of how USGS phrased it in their study. So USGS was very pointed in noting that there was a presence of these, but didn't conclude necessarily there was contamination, which explains kind of a nuance of how we're reporting on these things, especially as it relates to PFAS and lead and all of that, because the presence of lead, for example, say it's well below the threshold for that EPA has regulatory wise, is that still considered contamination even if you comply with the regulations? It's a really interesting uh, question. I thought that argument was quite quite interesting. That being said, there are a couple other statistics that I wanted to point out from that study that were really interesting and worth sharing. So mm -hmm. first was at least one PFAS was detected in 20% of private wells and 40% of the public supply samples collected throughout the U.S. Second, the probability of not detecting PFAS above the detection limits ranged from approximately 25% in urban centers, such as Chicago, or areas where a known history of PFAS contamination had occurred, Cape Cod, to greater than 75% in rural areas, meaning it's more likely to find PFAS in water in urban areas than it is in rural areas, which I think also correlates likely with the location of airports, which I thought was kind of interesting. They didn't note that in the study. That was just a conclusion I came up on my own. The third one here is that the proposed MCLs for PFOA and PFOS were exceeded in 6.7% and 4.2% respectively of all tap water samples collected, but were exceeded in 
and 70% respectively of tap water samples when they were detected. So overall, the detection of them was rather low, but when PFAS were detected, it was most more likely to be one of those two chemicals. And then the last one that I wanted to note was further, the proposed MCLs for PFOA and PFOS were exceeded in 63% and 67% respectively of the private well tap water samples and in 44% and 77% respectively of the public supply tap water samples when they were detected. Again, just highlighting that when PVAS are detected, the chances that it's PFOA or PFOS is much greater than some of those other chemicals that are on the list that they did uh, were detecting for in this study. Now, we'll dive a little bit deeper into this actually next month. Water Group editor Jeremy Wolf will be interviewing the lead researcher on this to better understand these results and to identify and clarify some of the things that they were looking for with this and kind of the intentions that they were trying to do. And we will have that episode dropping on August 4th. So look forward to that in the beginning of next month. Uh, Katie, I know you wanted to talk about the American Business Water Coalition. Yeah, thank you. So just a quick little announcement that in June, the American Business Water Coalition was launched with a goal of, quote, addressing the critical need for more federal investment into our nation's water infrastructure, end quote, a press release from the coalition said. Um, the coalition's executive team is gonna, going to be led by May Stevens, Senior Vice President at Banner Public Affairs and Chair of the Banner Water Infrastructure Practice. And the founding members of the coalition include uh, Louisville MSD, Jacobs, Seattle Public Utilities, and the Sewerage and Water Board of New Orleans. According to the press release, ABWC will serve as a platform for participating businesses and the utilities that serve them to urge Congress and the administration to increase investment in water infrastructure and foster relationships between businesses and their local utilities. So we'll uh, be keeping tabs on what the coalition is up to and, and share any uh, appropriate news. And I think Mandy had a final piece of uh, news to share with us today. The state of New Jersey has reached a proposed settlement with Salve Specialty Polymers USL, USA LLC in the amount of $393 million. It will be open to public comment until October 6, 2023. If finalized and approved by the court, it will be entered as a binding judicial consent order. This began four years ago in March 2019 when the Department of Environmental Protection issued a statewide directive ordering several companies to address, to address their con contributions to PFAS contamination in the area. In November 2020, the DEP finally sued Salve to expedite cooperation with the directive. A breakdown of where the money will be spent is Salve will post $214 million to guarantee the DEP will have access to sufficient financial resources to complete the cleanup if Salve fails to meet its obligations. $100 million will go toward addressing PFAS impacts to public water systems and private drinking wells. A list of known affected public and private wells is in paragraph 10 of the press release on waterworld.com, but more information is available on the DEP website linked in paragraph 11. $75 million is portioned to compensate for natural resource damages in addition to Salve's cleanup obligations, which they will pay for on their own. And $3.7 million is allocated to compensate the DEP for its costs so far in addressing the contamination. 
This seems to be only the beginning. Commissioner of Environmental Protect Protection, Sean LaTourette, said as DEP oversees the implementation of this settlement in South Jersey, we will continue to pursue PFAS manufacturers for the widespread harm their chemicals have caused across our state. Uh, what I think this means for the industry at large is that utilities and municipalities are going to continue to see recompense that has been needed for a long time. The National Rural Water Association announced a $1.185 billion settlement for water systems against manufacturers of PFAS about a month ago. That said, there have been several settlements, but I would like to know an aggregate amount that utilities have had to pay out to deal with this issue compared to what money they have received to offset those costs. Yeah, that that is an inter it's an interesting trend that we're seeing now where the there's a ton of settlement news coming out now as it relates to PFAS with some of these companies and the creating these funding sources potentially for utilities. And I think they're it's just really fascinating because I think there is some degree to which it's really good. And then there's other degrees to which there's a lot of water professionals are looking at it and saying, this just simply is a drop in the overall bucket. <laughs> like it's mm -hmm. really not going to solve too much. It'll solve some problems, but not enough of them essentially. But anyway, I think it's really fascinating to see that this is a growing trend. We've seen what three of these already this year. I imagine there's going to be quite a few more. And with that, I would like to transition us to our interview this month with Katie Peach, North American Domain Leader for Potable and Advanced Reuse for Veolia Water Technologies and Solutions. And I'm now joined by Katie Peach. She is North American Domain Leader for Potable and Advanced Reuse for Veolia Water Technologies and Solutions. Katie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Looking forward to this. Yeah, we, we've often covered this topic through the lens of manufacturers or thought leaders or in more of like the nonprofit realm and things. So I thought this would be really prudent to talk to someone who's more familiar with some of the municipal side of things, especially as your, with your role. Um, could you talk about some of the current trends that you're noticing in water reuse in North America and potable reuse and advanced reuse in general? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so water reuse isn't new in North America. Um, treated treated wastewater has been reused for beneficial purposes for almost 100 years. Um, but what we are seeing trends in is the the amount of reuse that's happening. Um, really seeing drivers like scarcity and population growth increases, um, pointing more and more uh, utilities and industries towards um, towards reuse. Um, some of those trends that we see are kind of are more advanced reuse purposes as well. Um, with things like potable reuse, moving from just using reusing water for you know agricultural irrigation um, and using that water more directly, um, including potable reuse where recycled water is used as a drinking water source. Um, that can be either indirectly through an environmental buffer like groundwater or surface water recharge, um, or even uh, directly to augment the source water or treated water for a drinking water facility. Um, so we're seeing that trend. And then as well, another trend that we're seeing is the diversity of treatment technologies that are used in potable reuse schemes and reuse schemes in general. Um, historically, there was some precedence on for using a um, UFRO, UVAOP flow sheet um, downstream of a conventional system, but we're seeing that changing over time, especially as reuse um, is being applied in more, more, um, more regions geographically where brine management can be a little bit prohibitive. So we're seeing more carbon-based treatment um, and other sorts of um, different different types of treatment trains is another trend that we're seeing. 
That's really interesting. You pointed to more geographic regions are starting to look at reuse in general, um, recognizing that scarcity is not necessarily a matter of lack of access and can oftentimes be a matter of quality as well. <laughs> um, but what appears to be driving a lot of those trends, you said you're seeing more geographically. Is it a water quality thing, for one, for some of those regions, or is it just regulatory structures that are driving those trends? I'd say it's probably, it's all of the above, really. Um, so yeah, I think, as you mentioned, water scarcity is kind of the first driver that comes to mind when we think about, about water reuse, um, really just insufficient water supply for the amount of people that need water. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we really see that in arid climates, historically, where we've seen a lot of potable reuse has kind of has been California area and those coastal areas where um, brine can be managed by um, discharging it out to the ocean. Um, but we're seeing it more and more inland, things like places like Arizona, Utah, Colorado. Um, some of those regions are starting to look more at, at reuse opportunities as well. Um, and I think in all of these areas, we see that um, by the, it's all exacerbated by the effects of climate change. Um, since climate emergencies, including drought, um, tend to be more severe and last longer. So that's really um, pushing utilities um, and industry to, to finding more sustainable and reliable sources of, of water. Um, but definitely another one is definitely environmental based. I think we see regulations getting tighter in certain regions for the purpose of environmental protection. Um, so an example of that would be the Senate Bill 64 in Florida, which is legislating that um, that all wastewater utilities uh, eliminate non-beneficial uh, discharge to surface water by 2032. So that's really forcing you forcing um, utilities to find alternate destinations for their water, um, which a common one is is reuse. That's a great opportunity to um, to reuse that water since they can't discharge it to to surface water um, in the coming future. Then um, another one I would say that we see that I kind of touched on a little bit is self-sufficiency for utilities. Mm. Um, depending on regardless of location, but um, especially in some of those arid climates, a lot of them reply, rely on imported water. Um, so bringing in water from other areas like the Colorado River into regions such as, you know, um, city of Santa Monica, for example, in uh, Los Angeles area. Um, they've historically imported about half of their water um, from a large importer, most of that coming from the Colorado River. So they recently implemented a potable reuse system for groundwater recharge. Um, which really um, reduces their reliance on that imported water and lets them be self-sufficient. So that really takes away the the risk of escalating costs for imported water, um, as well as the availability as legislations are, are cutting the availability of that imported water um, and that sort of thing. So um, yes, it's scarcity, but there's a lot of other things that build into that, like things like cost and and other sorts of aspects like that as well. Yeah, it, it's not just a one. It's not just a one thing saying making this a, a reality. It's it's such a complex web of concerns. It sounds like for a lot of these utilities. Definitely, definitely, and another one actually um, that's starting to come up more and be more talked about is sustainability, um, mm. both in terms of having that sustainable water source, um, but also in terms of sustainability and with things like greenhouse gas emissions um, and that sort of thing. Um, so kind of using that Santa Monica example as well, um, we actually recently worked with them on a, um, an emissions analysis and looking at the greenhouse gas emissions, um, kind of comparing what, what they were, what, what the greenhouse gas emissions would have been from um, the pre prior set setup where they were importing water and then versus, versus now when they're able to use that, um, that reuse water. Um, and that really... Um, when you look at the amount of power required to import that water, the greenhouse gas emissions from that, um, 
the savings in that really more than offset what the additional treatment that's required for noise water system. So just kind of another aspect of things that I think people are starting to consider in terms of drivers. It's not just about having the water. There's a lot of other factors that all um, kind of interconnect um, as we look at um, solutions for the future. Yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm hearing so much more about decarbonization and the climate change and the carbon footprint and trying to um, balance that with the needs of these facilities and what can we do to be better stewards of the environment while also being better stewards of the environment in two completely different ways. Absolutely, definitely. So well, from a technology standpoint, you mentioned some of those technologies kind of in the first, uh, in the first question there. Um, what are some of the ways that people are currently doing water reuse when it comes to the equipment they're using and the methods? What, what are some of the most common things that are currently used at this time for this? Yes, I mean, in terms of reuse applications, there's really a wide, it's really a fit for purpose. Um, mm -hmm. So it's with a wide variety of, of options and technologies that can be used, um, really dependent on the, the wastewater source as well as the reuse purpose. Is it for drinking water, um, like in a potable reuse scheme, or is it for industrial purposes? Um, some utilities sell their treated wastewater to nearby industries that might use it for things like boiling tower um, or uh, that sort of thing, um, or co cooling towers or boilers, um, which have a different um, different requirements in that in that treated water, obviously, than than what we'd be looking for for a potable reuse application. Um, so, really looking at that full um, treatment requirement really helps determine what technologies are are required. Um, but that being said, there definitely are some that we see more commonly used than the others. Um, and so for, for known potable reuse applications, um, you know, generally we're starting with an activated sludge process for nutrient removal and then solid separation and filtration, um, things like clarif clarification followed by filters, um, or more, more so over the last 20 years, we really uh, more commonly see membranes used in a membrane bioreactor application. Mm -hmm. It's becoming quite common um, where that membrane filtration step is consolidated with the activated sludge process to really simplify and intensify the treatment um, and provide an effluent quality that is well-suited for reuse applications like irrigation, um, agricultural, or um, further treatment, or, or and is well-suited for further treatment as well for more advanced um, reuse purposes. Um, and then in terms of looking at potable reuse, it's really a matter of looking at the different removals that are required, which the two main things that have to be addressed really being microbial, um, so that's mm -hmm. the pathogens in the wastewater that can that can make us sick, um, and then chemical removal. So pharmaceuticals, chemicals of emerging um, concern, that sort of thing. And so looking at multi-barrier approaches that meet those needs and the needs of, re of removal for those different those different things. Um, so I think, as I mentioned before, historically um, we've seen a number of systems using that that UF ultrafiltration um, RO, meaning uh, reverse osmosis. And then UVAOP, so UV um, advanced oxidation process, as that flow sheet. Um, but that's not that's not um, to say that we're limited to that. I think there's a lot of other flow sheets in use, um, such as in Namibia, which has been doing direct potable reuse with an ozone biofiltration and UF combination flow sheet. Um, and we're seeing more and more in North America using um, different flow sheets too. As I mentioned, um, the brine disposal for a reverse osmosis system can be prohibitive, especially yeah. in inland states and regions. Um, and that's really driving um, uh, driving folks towards um, non-RO based systems and looking at other options like using ozone bath. Um, the RO is the RO in that in that treatment train is commonly being used for the chemical removal. So removing those recalcitrant um, carbon and chemicals. 
And so an alternative for that can be um, combining ozone and biofiltration um, for some of that, for that recalcitrant um, carbon removal instead. So that's definitely a trend that we're seeing um, in terms of technology and what and where that technology is being used. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like every time that I'm talking about reuse, it always tends to skew toward membranes, but it's really cool to hear that there's um, some other ways that people are addressing that and their flow sheets are becoming a little more complex and more multivaried. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really a matter of, of there's not, there, there is no one size fits all flow sheet or technology mm-hmm. for reuse. It's really a matter of um, looking at, at, at what's required in that, in that area based on the, based on the needs, you know, is there a TDS, is there high TDS that needs to be removed from the system or not? Because that can really drive whether or not membranes are needed in the form of RO. Um, but yeah, really looking um, on a case-by-case basis to determine the best flow sheet for that for that application. True, truly, truly. Well, one of the things we, we like to talk about on this podcast, we, we're a one water podcast. We like to try and talk about how our market verticals intersect, whether that's drinking water, wastewater, stormwater, and where those lines are. Water reuse oftentimes kind of bridges across all three of them. Uh, are you noticing any trends when it comes to that, for example, of trying to break down those silos to make better water reuse programs overall? Absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely seeing a uh, a movement towards that more holistic one water approach where, you know, all water is considered together. Um, there's definitely some some challenges when um, things are operated in that in that very in, the, in those verticals you mentioned, really separating drinking water from from wastewater, from stormwater. Um, I mean, an example of that being one of the challenges right now is in terms of potable reuse, how is it operated? Is it operated by drinking water operators or will it be, or will those systems be operated by wastewater operators or is there a new type of certification required? Um, and different states are using different approaches in those regulations for operator certification. Um, but just kind of shows some of the challenges of, of treating things in those strict verticals, um, rather than kind of looking holistically at, at it from a one water approach. Um, I had never thought about the actual operator licensing question involved in this. That's a really interesting thought experiment of who operates these facilities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because there's definitely some aspects that are more, uh, you know, more related to the wastewater side of it. But some of the technologies that are being used are very, um, wastewater operators would have never had exposure to them. Like there are technologies that drinking water operators would have much more exposure to and experience with. So it's really, uh, it's an interesting like you said, thought experiment on, on how, what's the best, what's the best solution for that? Yeah. Well, you mentioned that as being a, a potential barrier and how different states are kind of a, achieving things differently there. But what are some other barriers that exist for the next plateau of water reuse? I, I think the most common one that I hear, and it's been the same for probably decades at this point, which is just public perception of it. But um, what, what are, what are the barriers that you are seeing and how are folks trying to overcome those barriers? Uh, yeah, I mean, into public acceptance and perception is definitely a big one. Um, I think another another barrier we see is monitoring. Um, there's a lot of technologies that are capable of meeting these needs, um, but it's how do we how do we find online or continuous monitoring um, for the sake of public um, public health, right? Like that's that's the mm-hmm. point of all of this is the the protection of public health. And so, how do we how do we find monitoring methods um, to be able to ensure that as a system is implemented that there's Things are running smoothly, and, and public health is continuously protected. Um, for an, an example of that is, is MBR technology, which, through a lot of testing, has been has demonstrated that it removes upwards of you know four log of virus, crypto, giardia, um, but there isn't an associated monitoring method yet to to really demonstrate that. So it's not being the credit that it could be given for for that removal. 
um, when you're looking at it in a flow sheet. So um, I think, yeah, the barrier of monitoring and, and the regulation and regulations in general, um, mm -hmm. a lot of regions don't have regulations yet um, or they're, they're, they're in the works, but that can be a bit of a barrier for utilities that are interested in implementing a, a reuse system, but don't, don't, don't quite know where to start. Um, like it's hard to get started when you don't know what will be expected from a regulatory standpoint. Um, so I think you also mentioned like how are what how are we breaking through these barriers? And I think um, there's a lot of different angles being used, which I think is 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 a good is good for it. One of them that we commonly see is pilots and demonstration systems, mm -hmm. um, which kind of helps address a number of those barriers. Actually, um, really providing an opportunity for testing and demonstrating a flow sheet, um, as well as the monitoring and demonstrating how the monitoring um, will work to the regulatory bodies, really working with those regulatory bodies, even if there isn't a framework for, for um, approval or um, permitting yet, you know, working with the regulatory bodies and saying like, here's what we're doing, what do you need us to show you um, through this pilot system so that we can achieve what we're trying to get to. Um, and then it also plays into a big factor of the public outreach. A lot of um, utilities are doing some really great programs um, in terms of public outreach with their demonstration systems. Um, you know, being able to do, having a, a really interesting facility that, um, the public can come to for tours, um, and really mm -hmm. see the, the technology in action. I mean, making beer always seems to work for, for, <laughs> for piloting and demonstrations. If you can say this, this beer was made from recycled wastewater, people are always happy to, to sample some free beer, <laughs> um, or other, or other adult beverages. But yeah, that's, a, that's a... <laughs> always a, an interesting one for public outreach program and kind of facilitated by things like pilots and demonstrations. Um, and I think a lot of research too. Um, the Water, Reuse, Water Research Federation, WRF, is doing a lot of great research projects um, that work on breaking some of those barriers um, with a lot of great minds from the industry um, kind of getting together to work on those. Um, and then just ongoing kind of research and development as well. I mean, from the vendor standpoint at Veolia, um, we've been working on developing a monitoring method that uses TSS to calculate um, the LRV of solids across a membrane, an MBR system, um, mm -hmm. and kind of seeing, you know, can we use that as a surrogate for pathogen removal? Um, it's hard. It's hard to measure pathogens online, right? So, what are, what else can we can we use to monitor that? So, um, yeah, kind of that that R and D of monitoring, I think, is another um, another big one there. Great. Well. Are there, are there other, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention as it relates to water reuse in North America um, before we close out? Not really, not, not, not really. I think we covered a lot here, but I think in general, I'm just really excited by seeing the trends um, and all of the, the excitement and passion that um, there are a lot of smart people working on this. And I think it's just, uh, just a matter of figuring out how to put it all together. I think we all know that it's there. We can do this safely. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out how to, how to regulate it, how to put it all together and um, make sure the public is on board, I think is important. Yeah. Well, I guess last question then is uh, for resources, for folks who are interested in learning more about uh, water reuse and uh, potable reuse, advanced reuse, all these different technologies that we talked about, where, where are some uh, resources that people can find? Where can they find them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple that come to my mind are the Water Reuse Association. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, the national um, body and they hold, hold a great annual conference as well as have regional chapters that hold conferences, webinars, that sort of thing. So that's a great, um, great resource to check out to learn more. Um, I think I mentioned the, the Water Research, uh, Water Research Foundation um, and a lot of the research that they do um, and they put together some great um, kind of research projects that you can read up on 
um, and see what's going on. And then uh, WEF also has a water reuse community, um, which is another great opportunity to kind of connect with um, a lot of the individuals in the industry who are working on these sorts of things. So, um, and, and, you know, they put on webinars and webcasts as well. Um, annual, like at, at WEF Tech, there's always lots of content on, on reuse, that sort of thing. So it's another great, great resource to learn more. Great. Well, thanks so much, Katie. I, I, I feel so glad and honored that we were able to talk to you about this because I did learn quite a bit from our conversation. So I appreciate you taking the time and talking with us through this. And I hope that it was useful for all of our listeners as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I guess another resource I would say would just be talk to people. I think people like myself and others who are passionate about water reuse always love talking about it. So if you find someone who, uh, who is interested in water reuse, just talk to them and see what you can learn. Cause I'm, I'm always happy. I'm always, ha I'm always happy to talk about water reuse. So thanks for having me today. Yeah. Thanks so much, Katie. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Katie, for that interview. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and it was great talking with you then. I, I really appreciated our conversation too when we were taught when I interviewed you for the young professionals, and uh, we'll have a video link in our show notes so that you can see learn more about Katie as well as a as a person and a professional in addition to the information that she shared today on water reuse. So appreciate that that interview once more. Now on to housekeeping. Uh, for WWD, please, as always, please visit the WWD YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Wastewater Digest. We just published an interview about Veolia's free operator education program that they just launched called Veolia Academy. We've got, I go into detail with the CEO of Municipal Water there on why that was done, how they created those resources, and why it was important for them to make them free. And then I also have an interview on the intersection of wastewater and AI uh, at a wastewater treatment plant in Delaware. So check out that one as well. We'll have links to those in the show notes. Uh, Mandy, would you like to share some information on Waterworld? Yeah, you can find the new issue of Waterworld at waterworld.com slash magazine. And for Stormwater Solutions, our July-August digital edition is now available on our website at stormwater.com slash magazine. We are also still accepting nominations for our 2023 top projects, and um, you can nominate at bit.ly slash topprojects23. Um, third, later this year, actually in just about six weeks, we will be hosting StormCon in Dallas, Texas from August 29th to the 31st. Exclusive to this podcast is a 10% registration discount. Visit bit.ly slash stormconreg2023 and use the code OneWater10, all caps, to get 10% off your registration. And finally, a quick shout out to the Stormwater World podcast. It's a casual yet informative podcast that covers all things stormwater. You can listen to it anywhere you listen to podcasts, watch it on YouTube, or check it out at stormwaterworld.com. And with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at endeavorb2b.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.